Welcome to the Steroids Podcast with your host, Dan the Bodybuilder from Thailand. Steroids Podcast is brought to you by Ultimate Guide to Roids, 109-page ebook by Dan the Bodybuilder from Thailand. Now, for the first time in bodybuilding history, you have someone with no corporate interests and no obligation to please anyone, not walking on eggshells to not offend. Ultimate Guide to Roids gives you the information, the whole information, the whole truth, not a full truth and a half-truth. Full truth. Ultimate Guide to Roids gives you the keys to the Lamborghini, gives you the information, and lets you decide what to do with it. It's a crime this information has been suppressed this long. Now let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Steroids Podcast. This is your host, Dan the Bodybuilder from Thailand. Currently in Vietnam, in Ho Chi Minh, Saigon City, Vietnam. And I've been here since January, and now it's March. So, been here in this city. It's been a great city. You know what? One thing I'll tell you guys before I get on to the steroids questions here is that if you want to know what the difference in the women is like and the culture is like between Vietnam and Thailand, the difference is that in Thailand, the girls are a lot easier and they also are not as trustworthy. And they also are more crazy. Vietnamese girls are more traditional. Um, usually when you date with them, they ask you, do you have sex before marriage? And they wear more modest clothing, um, more classical clothing. They usually wear dresses every day. So... Uh, there's the difference between Vietnam and Thailand. If you're looking to, um, you know, go through uh, a lot of short dating, uh, casual encounters, then Thailand is definitely uh, superior. But, I mean, that's going to get old for you. Um, on to the steroids questions. All right. First question is, what are the cardiovascular effects of having big muscles and getting gassed? And having a wave of oxygen loss. Yeah, that definitely happens. So when that stereotype of the big bodybuilder like getting gassed out is totally true. And so when you have the big, you know, unnaturally abnormally sized muscles where people are like, oh, that's not normal. Um, those muscles take up a lot of oxygen. And that's why, like, you know, after you do a set of squats or something, you know, you're like kind of out of breath. And you um you're you're definitely out of breath yeah you're low on the oxygen because those muscles used up a lot of oxygen okay so that's like the blood it transports oxygen to your muscles so that they can keep functioning and uh when you use really big muscles the requirement for oxygen is really high but your lungs didn't grow from your steroid use so your lungs really aren't really able to efficiently send uh, oxygen to your muscles and the way that this um, is experienced in the real world is like a delayed um, out of breathness so 
while you're like, for example, while you're actually doing the set of squats, you'll feel fine and feel like you have enough oxygen because you basically do it that time. But then once you rack the bar and you're standing there, well, those quads and, you know, butt and everything glutes still have this huge oxygen debt built up from doing that squat set. And you simply cannot get oxygen to them quick enough. And so they start stealing, you know, all the oxygen out of your blood. And so after your set, when you've started rested, it's like a wave that is increasing um, in strength. The, um, the amount of gas you are, um, lack of oxygen, it, it is increasing after the set is over. It's not like the set stops um, and then you, you know, you start recovering from there and your oxygen starts getting more better and you're more having more breath. Same thing for if you go and do like sprinting, like if you sprint 100 meters, the length of a football field, um, it's, you know, you're going to be fine running it on, on steroids and having huge muscles, like when you're doing it. But after you stop your oxygen, then is going to your, your muscles are going to take up all the oxygen that's in your blood and you're going to be like so gassed. So that's basically how this is experienced is once you get the bodybuilder, like moving and, um, you know, being active, then it's like a delayed response, um, oxygen depletion that happens as the muscles take out the oxygen. And then, uh, that's when you'll really see the bodybuilder sucking for air. So that definitely happens for, for me. Um, if I was like going for, well, you know, I, I weigh between 220 and 240 pounds. So, um, a hundred, a hundred and 105 kilo up to 115 kilo. And that that's like my normal weight range. And, um, yeah, I definitely experience uh, a hard time with getting oxygen when it comes to like running, um, you know, running a mile would be a, a really daunting task, um, at this weight for me. Um, as well as, you know, I have to be wary of exerting myself, um, and knowing what the after effects are going to be, because I know that, uh, I'm going to get an oxygen debt if I, if I really, you know, exert myself as, as a bodybuilder, I don't like feeling like gassed out like that, um, or like really desperate out of oxygen. So what that'll normally do is slow down my workout a bit and make it so that I have to take, um, a little bit more time resting on stuff that takes a lot of oxygen. So not like not bench press, you know, not pull-ups, not rows, basically just leg work, basically just squats. Um, and then something, another thing that I would get totally gassed out doing would be sprints or doing long distance running, um, being heavy and having a lot of muscle muscle and having a bodybuilder. Uh, it is, it is a correct stereotype that those guys can get, um, an oxygen debt and be like sucking for air. Like <gasps> that's, that's a correct, that's a correct, uh, stereotype about bodybuilders guys who are bodybuilders with big muscles. Um, all right. The next, Oh, actually I want to mention that overheating is also a thing. So when you're really big, um, like that, uh, have a lot of m mass for your surface area for the amount of skin that you have, uh, you know, you get hotter and 
you can overheat and like get heat stroke from continuing. You get hotter on steroids, but if you're really big, in addition to that, you can like overheat and get heat stroke like more easily. Definitely, definitely. So you'll notice that uh, those muscles really heat you up. They put a lot of demand on your heart and everything. And so if you're doing exercise, you sweat a lot more and you get a lot hotter than other people who are natural. Uh, th this is a very prominent effect of taking steroids. So, uh, you know, at the gym, for example, when you're natural, you might sweat a bit. But when you're on steroids, it's going to look like you just stepped out of the shower, you know, because of all the sweat on your body. Your body will be glowing with sweat. Um, all right. So that's overheating. And again, there's there's nothing you can do about that. There's This is part of like being huge or like being on a lot of gear and stuff like that. This is I'm t this is stuff that bodybuilders experience. That's a, it's a consequence of being, um, you know, a hundred pounds over your natural body weight when you started going to the gym. Okay. The next question is from John and he asks, could you go into scar tissue from injections on the next podcast? I'll pin the same gear 2cc in my delt or quad. No problem. Hit a glute and it's a bad shot swollen and painful for several days. My guess is that there's more scar tissue damage in the glutes because they have been in the injection cycle the longest and got the most damage over time. Yeah. That, so any injection area that you use frequently, like whatever your favorite injection area is, after doing that area over and over again for six months or so, it'll start to just get hard in general and kind of swollen. Like it will it will be bigger too. That muscle will be, will be bigger because the scar tissue that grew inside of it uh, because of all the injections and inflammation and, you know, foreign bodies that you were injecting into it uh, by sticking the needle in there and pushing it through with the syringe into your body in that area uh, causes a lot of scar tissue to, to, to build up inside. So it's, I mean, it's taking injections. This is well known as a form of sight enhancement, whatever muscles that you do your injections in most of the time, they will get bigger because they build scar tissue up inside of them. Um, the scar tissue has a lot of bad effects. Like it makes the muscles have adhesions between the fibers. So they're like pulling on, you know, they're not able to relax and contract or, you know, it might pull your the correct way or it might pull your joints slightly out of place. So you can think you have joint problems and, you know, doctors will say you have tendonitis, but really you have these adhesions between your muscle fibers that are, you know, making them not be able to relax correctly, which is then putting pressure on your joints because they're not in the correct places. So you have to break up those adhesions. And the way to do that is by myofascial release therapy or deep tissue massage, trigger point therapy. Um, that breaks them up. So uh, scar tissue is not fun. And I've definitely had it like in my upper outer glutes. That's probably like my upper outer glutes. That's probably my biggest scar tissue uh, spot that I have. Same as you. Um, but yeah, you got to rotate injection sites. You've got to have at least four injection sites, guys. So if you've only got two injection sites, even if you're only doing, um, you know, like two shots a week, you've you've got to rotate four injection sites because if you just do two, it starts to get the scar tissue thing more quickly. And, okay, so some guys do, you know, just to say a little bit more about the site enhancement thing that I was talking about from injections. So, you know, guys will do their their injections into the body parts that they want to be the biggest, like 
like if that is what you want to do, you know, and and you're comfortable doing that, you know, a lot of people take their steroid injections into their biceps or into their triceps, and a lot of people take them into their shoulders. Um, you know, it it can be strategic where you put your steroids. Where do I put my steroids? I put my steroids around my hips. I put them out, you know, in my glutes, um, in my ventral glutes, and um, in the front, uh, in the front of my hips, in the hip flexor muscle. Uh, so right around that iliac crest bone area of the pelvis uh, that surrounds it, that's where that's where I do uh, all my shots these days. I don't. I used to do quad injections, but after my leg infection, I don't do um, I don't do quad injections anymore. Just around the hips. But anyways, I've got six injection spots with that. So glute, and then the side, and then my side, the side of the hip, and the front of the hip, and then both sides. So that's six injection spots for me. So that's a good rotation for me. Uh, but I will say, you know, uh, for guys that say I can't inject in my glute, okay, the, you got to inject it with one hand when you are doing a glute injection. So you put the needle or the syringe in the same hand as the side that you're going to do the injection on, and then you just reach back with you. You turn your head, you know, and and reach back to your side, and with just that one hand, and then you kind of dart, you know, kind of like toss the needle like into your butt cheek um and <laughs> and it it's not hard it's not hard the glute injection is really easy i know a lot of guys say it's like really hard so just do it with one hand and it doesn't really even matter like if the needle isn't steady or not it, actually the glutes are a really good spot for injections what's the largest injection i've ever given myself in you know like one syringe full Largest injection I've given myself is seven cc's. It was two cc's of testosterone, um, testovirin, and five cc's of primobolin. So it was 900 milligrams of steroids. And I put it in a 10 cc syringe, but it filled up seven cc's. And I uh, did that into my butt cheek. So they can, they can take high amounts of oil. That's an advantage for butt cheek injections, glute injections. And for scar tissue, you got to do myofascial release therapy, deep tissue massage, and keep rotating. That's that's the way to deal with it. And then the other thing is that if you want a certain muscle to be uh, bigger, know that wherever you do your injections, that area will get bigger. So if you're doing your injections on your upper outer glute you know that area will get bigger if you do it on your in your bicep that area will get bigger if you do it in your shoulder the area will get bigger if you do it in your chest that area will get bigger the there's a sight enhancement aspect to um, taking steroid injections many steroid injections over and over again in the same area there's a sight enhancement side to that okay next question is from SoCal who asks, my question is these strongman competitors like Shaw, Thor, Hall, 400 pounds, are they just blasting high-dose tests and what other anabolics all the time? What if they came off, would they shrink back down to normal size? Okay, the first thing about these guys is that they are like not the typical tall guy that you see. The typical tall guy that you see has really long femurs, the bone between your hip and your knee like an abnormally out of proportionally large femur either that or they'll have a like out of proportion large spine it's usually some 
some area, some bone area in their body is like longer than normal. And then it will make them look almost like stretched out. But then occasionally you see these guys who are tall, but they don't look stretched out, you know, and, and they're not on steroids either. Uh, so they're not bodybuilders. Uh, and But you just see their frame, you know, their bone structure. And it looks more like just a normal guy, like, for example, um, you know, maybe a wrestler or something. But you just stretched him in all directions equally and made it bigger, you know, so you blew it up. Um, but that's unusual. The more usual way is for that tall guys have some limb that is proportionally longer than their other limbs. And it's usually their femur bone in their leg is proportionally larger in comparison to all their other bones in their body. And so they'll have more of like a, uh, they won't look wide, you know, they'll, they'll look tall and um, more narrow. But then you have other people, okay, that, that are like these guys that you're talking about, Shah, Thor, Hall, 400 pounds, okay? The, these guys are not those guys that are born with the long femurs or the long spine or something. These guys are the guys that are born... And they're just, they're proportioned like the same as like a five foot five guy or a five foot nine guy, something like that. But if you just blew that five foot nine guy or that five foot five guy up into a giant that was seven feet tall and kept his same proportions. So all the parts that, you know, the, the length of the, the arm in comparison to the width of the chest and, um, you, you know, the length of the different bones and everything, it's going to be the same. As the 5'9 guy, it's just bigger. You've just blown it up bigger. And that's what these guys are like. Their skeletons are so fucking massive, okay? Let me tell you, their skeletons are so massive. Um, they, it's, they will never be small like you and I. They, these are born giants. They're born big people. They're not born tall people. They're born huge, massive people. They're, they're literally like giants, just a normal person blown up big. So, you know, then with those kinds of genetics, then you add the high dosage testosterone in there, which is by far the most important drug that these guys use, testosterone and DECA. Those are going to be the most important ones that they're on all the time. And, you know, the dosages that we're talking here, you know, we're talking about the top of the, the top, the top competitors in the world. So, you know, the, the ticket to entry, you know, to, to being able to play, able to play in the league of the big guys in a sport that relies on strength like that with people this massive and that much holding that much lean muscle tissue. We're talking like, you know, your ticket to play is like a vial of testosterone per week. And that, that's not, that's politically incorrect to say, but Powerlifters who are at the top have been using a vial of testosterone per week for like more than 50 years. This is not new. Um, there's an interview where Dorian Yates talks about it in the 80s, for example. He talks about um, that they used 2,500 milligrams. That was like a standard dosage for powerlifters at his gym. I'm talking standard dosage. And, you know, if they were hit, the powerlifters he's friends with, then these are guys that are probably winning competitions and stuff like that, okay? So when you talk about uh, these guys, these guys, you know, they're 400 pounds. Um, 
steroid dosage is body weight dependent, by the way. If you're a bigger person, um, you, you need more steroids. Uh, but that's obviously mixed then with, you know, how you metabolize steroids since two people can sit, take the same amount of steroids but get different blood levels of the steroids in their blood. So there's other factors, but this is a factor. You know, body weight, body size is a factor in the amount of steroids that you need for your body. Um, and then the other thing that, you know, they, they take stuff like Anadrol and Dianabol um, to break through plateaus. And then like peaking for the competitions, that's very popular. And then the other thing that is important that they take is they take growth hormone for joint support. So basically the steroids build the muscles and then the growth hormone combined with the steroids builds the connective tissue. So steroids do actually increase the density and the amount of calcium in your bones. And then so does growth hormone. So it's a synergistic effect there. Your bones become heavier and more dense because there's more material being deposited into them. Uh, so the same bones that you have when you go on steroids and you go on growth hormone, they become more dense, meaning that um, there's less, there's less space inside there. There's more calcium fit into that same area of, you know, the, the substance that makes up your bones. So that's one thing about testosterone and growth hormone being combined together. But then the other thing, is that uh, growth hormone, it builds your tendons and ligaments, things that connect your bones to each other and the things that connect your muscles to your bones. Um, basically, that's its highest, its highest rated quality of like anything that could be measured with taking growth hormone. Um, building that connective tissue is the direct effect of of growth hormone and it's something that's doing right away. It's doing heavily. It's doing that more than it's participating in something like muscle growth. So for a power lifter, um, being on, you know, a moderate dosage of growth hormone, uh, for most of the time is very good from a recovery standpoint. Uh, for one thing, it makes you recover more quickly from, uh, minor injuries too. So you can train harder more often because it speeds up the repair of that growth of that uh, cartilage ligaments and collagen um, that happens after injuries and the the growth hormone it's not the most essential part though okay guys like if you're a power lifter and you're wanting to be like one of these guys you know uh, actually they're strong men you know these strong men who are 400 pounds the first thing is that if you weren't this is a, a sport where and being like those guys, you got to be born with the right bones to be one of them. So if your bones aren't like that, then you'll need to choose. Uh, if your goal is to, you know, be the best at something, then you'll need to choose something else that is uh, better suited for your, your genetic, for your genetic uh, uh, lot that you were dealt. doesn't mean you have bad genetics. It just means that your genetics are better suited for something else. Um, and the, I'm, I'm looking at the, the question right now to make sure I got everything. Yeah, so the most important thing for the, for the guys that want to be like Shah, Thor, Hall, etc. is high-dose testosterone. And secondary is DECA. Those are the two most important chemicals. And then everything um, after that is like additions. But, you know, Dianabol and Anadol are really cheap too, and they're widely used in powerlifting. 
and strongmen. So that, I mean, that kind of like goes without saying. Those, those, those are the easiest things to get would be testosterone and DECA and Dianabol and Anadrol. That would give you the most bang for your buck in um, having the, you know, being able to do kind of more of the stuff that those guys do. And I mean, it goes without saying too that guys that big that are eating so many calories, you know, the way that they do and are so heavy, you know, they're taking insulin as well. I mean, it's part of the, it's part of the insulin, steroids, and growth hormone. That's what they do. That's what pro athletes do, guys. They take insulin, steroids, and growth hormone. So if you're a pro athlete, you're most likely doing that. All right, we'll get on to the next question. The next question now. It's from Quiet Storm. He says, hey, do you have any experience with getting bad acid reflex with Trembolone? Seems every time I get in it happens. It's horrible. Yeah, I do. Um, actually, with, with many steroids or substances, oral steroids give me acid reflux. Trembolone gives me acid reflux. Uh, clenbuterol gives me acid reflux and that shit burns it's almost unbearable because once it's with you for a couple days like 48 hours it so there's there's acid in your stomach so one of the things the reason why steroids do this is because they you know proteins are acidic they're amino acids and the body when you take steroids it's hoarding the protein it's not excreting it or letting it out it keeps it inside it loses less of it so your, your body becomes more acidic um, how I deal with this is I drink a little bit of baking soda. I've got my baking soda right in front of me. I can see it right now. I take a half teaspoon every day to alkalinize my body. I notice that I don't have as much um, burning sensation or lactic acid either when I do that in my muscles when I'm training, uh, which some you know it makes me be able to work out a little bit a little bit uh, longer through the set to you know have my body not be really acidic. I only notice that extra pain if my body gets really acidic. And then I'm having really bad acid reflux, reflux. And then, you know, when I take the, the baking soda, I'll notice actually even a difference in the gym in addition to my throat um, about a day later or so. But a lot of people say, oh, don't take baking soda. You know, it, you got you to gotta drink vinegar or something because the, the baking soda will just make it worse. It'll make your problem worse because of some biological pro, uh, thing that happens in your stomach. But... In practice, in actually utilizing the baking soda, um, it's not the case. It's only the case in theory. So a lot of people will say, don't do the baking soda for the uh, acid reflux or like it'll make it worse in the long run. So then you're like, oh, I won't do it. Uh, <laughs> I'll take this medicine instead. And the medicine has a patent on it. And baking soda is like 10 cents for a box. And, you know, that patented medicine, you know, the pharmacy companies, they really want you to buy that pharmacy medicine because baking soda at 10 cents a box doesn't really make them any money. So it works. It works. Okay. If you're having acid reflux problems, Tren, oral steroids, clenbuterol, if you take a half teaspoon of baking soda and mix it in water and drink it, instant relief, instant relief and prolonged relief. If you keep having more acid throughout the day, just keep on taking another half teaspoon of baking soda. That's what I do, and I don't have any problems, and I don't have diarrhea either. Maybe the first week you'll have diarrhea. I did have it for about the first week, but after that, no. Okay, next question. People talking about what they are on currently or on in a photo when the day previous to that, they were on a mega cycle. Why do people say what they use 
at the moment of the picture or the video versus what they use to gain their muscles. Because they have God complexes. They have God complexes. The steroids contribute, but also they're insecure, you know. Without the steroids, they wouldn't be superhuman anymore. They'd be like the regular people. And one of the things that you notice when you're on steroids is, hey, I'm not like regular people. I'm different. So uh, (laughs) everybody wants to be special, guys. Everybody wants to be special. So, you know, this is a thing that a lot of guys... They'll, they'll say what they're using currently and they'll have really amazing physiques, but that wasn't what they used to get there. So guys will use something like, you know, 700 milligrams of trend per week, you know, regularly with, you know, the same dosage of testosterone or something. And, you know, maybe use that for doing cycles with that kind of thing for a couple of years or so. And then, you know, eventually they'll just be doing 500 milligrams of test with uh, 50 milligrams of Anivar. And then they'll be taking pictures. And so they have all this trend muscle from all this time on trend or, you know, whatever they were taking. You know, it doesn't have to be trend. It can be any steroid. And they have it all built up. But then they'll start taking pictures and say things or videos and say things like, this is what I'm on. Like, look what I'm on. Like, look how little I'm on and what I'm able to have. And, you know, the thing that I I really don't really give a fuck, like uh, what people use or how much or how little or what the only thing that really care that really matters that much um as far as like real prestige in in like bodybuilding if that's you know if virtue signaling and having prestige is what matters to you is the end product it doesn't really matter how you got there it just matters what you have what you show that's that's what other people seem to be the most impressed by um rather than how little or how much you use to get there so um yeah people people you know they want to they want to be special, and this is another way, you know, other than being a fake natty or other than, you know, saying you use low dosages. Here's another fake natty steroid user way is this is what I'm on currently, and, you know, and, and this is all I take to look like this when they got that by using a gram of trend and a gram of testosterone per week. All right, next question. Ian, I'm running a modest 1,200 milligram total of anabolics, but I train pretty damn intense and for about two hours daily. Do I have to worry about overtraining if I wake up every morning ready to attack my workout? Because taking a rest day sounds awful. Thanks for your input. Yeah, overtraining is real on steroids for sure, especially depending on your food intake. That's actually the main thing. Is I've said this before is that the only thing that steroids do to help you gain muscle is manipulate what your body does with the food that you eat. They make it so that your digestive system does different things with the food that you eat than it would do if you're not on them, okay? Steroids don't just produce muscle out of thin air, okay? They change what your body and your organs do with your food. So, uh, if you are eating a lot of food, uh, usually just more and more of it gets converted um, into repairing and recovering those muscles. And usually, you know, if food really is unlimited, um, you I mean, you would gain a lot of weight and gain a lot of fat, but you could basically train every single day uh, if you were on gear, like you said, about a gram of gear, that's enough, um, where you could just 
keep on getting bigger, 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 and stronger, stronger, stronger. Uh, but if you're on, you know, a normal diet or a limited food intake or something like that, or even just eating at maintenance calories, just normal calories, uh, if you're going heavy seven days a week, meaning you're doing um, sets to failure uh, with weights that you cannot lift for more than 10 reps and you're doing those sets to failure throughout your workout, um, you're definitely going to be overtraining. And, and how you'll know that is you look at what your performance has looked like in the gym um, and you say, have my numbers and my sets and everything, have they been stagnating or have they been continuing to progress? Am I adding more sets with the same amount of weight to my chest, my leg, my back workout? Am I adding more reps? Am I adding more weight? Okay. Got to be adding more reps to your sets with the same weight. Uh, you got to be adding more weights with same amount of reps. And you got to be doing all this. You got to be adding more sets with the same weights and the same amount of reps, right? So that you're getting more volume in. You're doing more work over time. Um, and if you are not making that kind of progress, then you know that you're overtraining. If you're just going to the gym every week and it's just the same weights, the same amount of sets, and you feel like you can't do more and shit like that. Normally when that happens, um, you got to change your roids, you got to change your food, or you got to change your training and your set and rep scheme, like the probably how heavy you're lifting, you know, like rep ranges, like six rep maxes or 12 rep maxes or so. The main thing is, is that don't go heavy more than three times per week. You can do like, you know, you, if you're going to work out every day, you should not be doing like bench press sets to failure multiple times per week, multiple days per week. You should only do that one day per week, bench press sets to failure and squat sets to failure, deadlift sets to failure, um, lat pull down sets to failure. And then if you're going to come back and work out those same muscles again during the week, yeah, that's fine. But know that your body cannot take that kind of intensity again and then improve. Okay. So in order to do, in order for you to get benefit from that second workout during the week, you'll need to use lighter weights that are not that hard for you. So you're still doing work. The muscle's still doing work, okay? You're adding overall work to the muscle's workload during the week, but you're not adding trauma and, and damage to it. So, you know, go there and, you know, go through the motions and, you know, work on your form, get a pump, but you're not, you're always stopping shy, a two to three reps of failure on that second workout so that you're not ever taking yourself into that zone where your muscles start tearing themselves apart, okay? That's, you, you want to get work work in and stimulus and then allow your muscles to keep on recovering from the super heavy workout earlier while stimulating them again a bit and getting more food to go towards them during the week after that so that then once it's been a week since that last you know heavy compound workout where you were doing bench press squats deadlifts rows etc you know with weights that you cannot lift for more than 10 reps and you're doing sets to failure with those weights. Before you attempt that again, you've got to give your body a week 
unless you're on some kind of powerlifting program that specifically calls for it not to be that way, you got to give yourself some time uh, for your body to be able to come back and do better. And if you're not being able to come back and do better and you know, your training, your diet and your steroids aren't making that happen in the gym, then something's got to change. Um, if you know, if you're trying to gain muscle, different story, if you're losing fat, cause you're going to lose strength when you're losing fat, there is no way around it, including steroids. Um, Next question, power to the people ask, Hey dude, curious if you have any experience with men, thoughts, concerns, advice, I don't have any experience with it, but I'll tell you what it is. And my thoughts on it, um, it's a contraceptive. So it's really, really effective at making you sterile or like shutting you down. Okay. Like the, when your, your testicles stop producing testosterone and sperm, it's very effective, um, more than almost any other hormone for doing that. And it's related to trend. Um, it comes from the same family of hormones as trend. 19 nor testosterone. That's a family of hormones. Um, Nandrolone or DECA. The DECA family of hormones. Once you have 19 nor testosterone, which is a type of testosterone that is related to progesterone, a female hormone. It's similar. Then from there, that, that's DECA. And then from there, you know, you can keep on making alterations and making it a little bit different. And so you can get trend and you can also get ment, uh, trestolone. Okay. So trendolone, DECA, ment, trestolone, they're all related. They're very structurally similar. So the ment, what it can do, you know, you think, you think DECA, you think trend gives you, maybe you got some issues with trend, some, some hormone issues, maybe some dick issues something like that, some dysfunction or, you know, some gyno or something. Wait till you get on the ment, man, because trend is not estrogenic, but it is, it's pretty damn progestogenic and it increases prolactin too. Um, but ment is progestogenic and it's prolactic and it's estrogenic. <laughs> so you got everything. It's, it's like a female hormone bomb, man. It's like a female hormone bomb. And so the people that are using ment at dosages that they are, um, you know, 400 milligrams per week injections or 700 milligrams per week, you know, in trend ish types of dosages, they're running like a millig- they're running like a 2.5 milligram tablet of letrozole every day with that. And they're also like on a lot of cabergol and, and other shit. And it's probably still kind of a mess and they've got a lot of water retention, stuff like that, that that's so trestalone meant, this is not something that, you know, Throughout history, bodybuilders have used this drug in order to obtain the physiques that you see and you admire and that you want to uh, achieve that physique. You know, those bodybuilders didn't use mint or trend to, to do that, just so you know. So for my, my preference is I don't see the need to reinvent the wheel as far as um, performance enhancing drugs and steroids go. Um, I think you should stick to the tried and true. Um, what all the bodybuilders that you see who are, who have been successful, what they use to get their physique. Why as an amateur go try experimenting with all this crazy shit, um, that it's, it's like, what the hell? I mean, and it, why not just use trend anyways? Why not just use trend? Cause trends, if you're going to be having a mess with bodybuilding and a hormonal mess and stuff and side effect mess, then why not, you know, look the best you can. Because trend makes you like really hard and separated and angular and shit. So 
I don't think mints. I think I think mints stupid. People use it. People use it, but uh, it's not widely used. It's it's experimented with. Okay, Frank from Jersey. I bought and started a thousand IU's of Ansimone in January. I do four IU's per day, AM, PM. I'm twenty percent complete with my thousand IU's. Okay, so you've taken two hundred IU's so far. My question is, I have some business trips coming up and don't have a prescription to bring the HGH with me. Do you have any recommendations for me on how I can transport with me, or do I have to suck it up and miss a few days? If I miss a few days, will it set me back? Okay, traveling with growth hormone is a little bit different than traveling with any other PEDs. Well. Any kind of lyophilized powder, which is the white powder that growth hormone comes in, if you buy it in a vial, or uh, an Ansimone, the, the brand of growth hormone that you're talking about. It's a pharmaceutical brand um, used in Chinese hospitals that you're talking about. Um, it, it comes in vials. So that, those, those vials, you when you get the growth hormone and you prepare it for injection, you get the vial and you put some bacteriostatic water in it which is a sodium chloride solution to make it so that instead of just you know being sterile water that uh, doesn't have any bacteria in it you actually actively have the sodium chloride solution in there to make it so that bacteria can't really uh live in that uh in that water okay so that's why sterile wa sterile water is inferior to bacteriostatic or sodium chloride solution water uh for reconstituting growth hormone or hcg it, you're you're talking like the growth hormone lasting for five days or three days once it's been reconstituted with sterile water versus being working and working good for three four five weeks um with sodium chloride solution bacteriostatic water uh, being good so it lasts a lot longer that way in the fridge and as far as transporting it goes if you leave the growth hormone once it's been reconstituted and it's in the vial like the ansimone is those are in the vials little white the little clear vials with the the uh the powder at the bottom white powder at the bottom um so if once you've reconstituted it and it's mixed with the water if you leave it out of the fridge for like more than an hour it, it'll be useless it, it it just won't be anything anymore so know that with the growth hormone that transportation is a factor which is also one of the reasons uh why you know getting human growth hormone legitimately is always better than getting it when it's uh you know had a long trip to get to you um rather than getting it from somewhere where you know it, it was just recently at the pharmacy and it's been cooled and hasn't really been taken out of the refrigerator during those transportation times because it can degrade a bit and make some impurities and growth hormone is related to prolactin. It's very similar to prolactin. The molecule is barely different. They're both made by the pituitary gland and growth hormone that uh, is not um, hardened to withstand being out of the refrigerator. When people talk about having sexual dysfunction or talking about having gyno, um, and it being growth hormone related, it's always because they're on generic. It's never, it's never pharmaceutical grade. Um, I, yeah, I've yet to hear that, to, yet to hear it ever come from a pharmaceutical grade growth hormone source. But keeping the growth hormone cold is important. That's what I'm trying to tell you is that, yeah, it does last 
and it can be outside of the outside of the refrigerator for about like a month when it's still in that white powder form which you know it's not been mixed yet which means that you know it's probably not been outside of the refrigerator for 30 days while it's been traveling to you so you know it's it's almost you know it's probably barely degraded at all in that case so it's you know still really good quality um but generally you don't ever you don't ever want to keep this stuff out of the refrigerator like ever so <laughs> so whether it's the powder or whether it's reconstituted into the liquid you always keep it in the refrigerator you always keep it cold and so if you take it anywhere with you you put it in a little cooler you you have to put it in, you have to have a little cooler with you and put put it in there because you don't ever uncool this stuff it always stays cold that's the thing with growth hormone it never warms up you always keep it cold if you've got to let it warm up for a little bit, keep it under an hour if it's uh, already in the water, and then it'll probably s still work for another day or two. Um, and, you know, if you've got to transport it or do something with it, you know, keep it cold uh, when it's, and, you know, yeah, keep, keep an ice pack with it or something like that. So I don't think that you should fly with the growth hormone and I do not think that you should transport it if you do not have a prescription and you are in a Western country. Uh, I just, I know they don't like that. They don't like that. They don't want you. They don't want you doing that. And people from time to time who do such things get caught and have some problems because of it. Growth hormone is not an illegal drug. It's not an illegal substance, um, but it is a medication that um, is watched more closely by the government, and they don't want you having that with you. Specifically, they don't want you having growth hormone. Okay, the next question is from Kitty Dynamite. So I've been following your trend protocol been on it for about four weeks. I've done wrestling and BJJ for about 15 years and never did trend because cardio side effects. I was in good cardio shape before starting trend. And in the last four weeks, I've never been this strong my entire life. And my cardio feels increased possibly from the strength increase. Is this the norm or are people just that out of shape before using trend? Thanks. That's a really good question. Yeah. So Trenbolone really changes things, guys. I'm not kidding you when I say that this is the most powerful substance for physique and performance enhancement. And it has qualities that are so different from the other steroids that it's almost like it's not a steroid, but it's some other kind of, some other kind of uh, chemical. Trenbolone is very powerful. Um, and so when you went on to trend, you know, and you're saying now you think that you you know, your cardio feels even possibly increased. I bet it is because you're stronger now. And I don't think you're exerting yourself as hard anymore to do the things that before caused you to really fucking have to exert yourself. Now it's not that hard after four weeks on trend. So yeah, you're, you're thinking, huh, almost feels like my cardio is better. And the thing with trend is that yeah, it decreases your thyroid levels. And when thyroid levels are decreased, like a side effect of hypothyroidism, well, just thyroid disorders in general. If your thyroid is fucked up, you can, it can cause some swelling in your throat. And so some people, a good, a good amount of people, 
they experienced some, from the thyroid dysregulation of Tremblone, they experienced some swelling in their throat. So it can feel a little bit like that airway is not quite as, you know, not quite on an asthma level, but it can feel like that airway is not quite as open. And uh, that, that doesn't happen to everyone, though. It doesn't really happen to me. Maybe after long term, I think, I, you know, I've had it from time to time on higher, on higher Tremblone dosages. The higher the dosage, the more prominent those kinds of effects are. But in general, the out of breath side effects from trend are not really like an accurate thing about like day to day being out of breath. Okay. When you get a trend cough, which is where you take an injection and immediately the body has an allergic response to it. It can, the, some of the, the chem, the trend or the chemicals in the trend, whatever, it comes out of your lungs. So it goes, you know, into a vein in your, in your muscle or whatever, and then it goes to your heart. And then there's some kind of thing that happens where it gets in those, um, those alveoli in your lungs. It gets mixed with the blood that goes to the lungs because then you feel this sensation deep in your chest. It's in your lungs at the bottom of your lungs. It feels very heavy and it feels like you can't get air or oxygen. So if you're breathing, it, you can like breathe in, but there's like the oxygen just doesn't like come in, you know, like it doesn't come through the alveoli, the organ in the lungs that cause the oxygen to go into the blood. It just doesn't work. So uh, then you can be like gagging and trying to breathe. And it's like really, really hard to breathe. You're struggling to get some breath and you're trying to lay down kind of like bent over and coughing and really red, and then I think you're gonna, you know, if it's a really bad trend cough, you're like, Jesus Christ, I hope I don't die for like three to five minutes, but then it always gets better, and no one's ever died from trend cough. So a lot of people have thought they were gonna die from trend cough, and it can be a really, uh, I wouldn't say scary, because if you're ready for it and you know it's trend cough, it's like, well, it's gonna pass. It always passes, and you don't die. It passes, so. That's more of the thing. I think that thing about the trend cough and when you're experiencing that, like not being able to breathe because you feel those chemicals then and you can taste them too. You can taste them coming, you know, the, the, the ones that you shot in the injection in your muscle. Then it goes, runs up to your heart, goes filtered through, goes through the blood that goes into the lungs. And then you can, you're like breathing these chemicals out and you can taste them in your mouth and feel the heaviness in your lungs. It's a very strange feeling. Um, and... Yeah, the trend cough, it's extremely uncomfortable. For me, with trend, I get a trend cough of varying severity. Um, probably like one out of three or four trend injections. And mostly they're not really extreme like that. Mostly they're just small. And I would feel, you know, like my face would get red and blotchy. And then I'd feel that heavy feeling in my lungs and taste it, trace the trend. And I would probably like do a few coughs and feel like there was something kind of blocking my oxygen a little bit, but not too much. It would just, it would be like a minor thing that would be. And, and then, you know, after five minutes, I just moved on with my day and it didn't cause me to buckle over or anything or need to lay down. That would be a normal trend cough. So there are varying severity. Sometimes it, it can be really bad. Like what I explained before though, or it can be like barely noticeable. And then the frequency with which I get trend cough. Okay, and then another thing, you know, we were talking about Trestolone earlier, and we were talking about, uh, like, Nandrolones, okay? So 
all these chemicals are very closely related. So there's a steroid that's sold for emergency contraception. If you've ever uh, bought like Plan B or Madonna, the, the morning after pill, emergency contraceptive pill. So that is actually another analog of Trandolone. <laughs> it is. It is. It's called Levornorgestrel. Okay. And, and so actually, um, you know, the reason why it's, it's a Levonorgestrel is because it's, it's 19 nor family of sex hormones. And then the gestrel is because it's a progesterone. It's, you know, derived from progesterone like DECA. And so basically they give this, this, uh, the Levonorgestrel to the women to terminate as a poison to terminate their pregnancy. Um, but you know, the steroid that, uh, the Balco labs guy, Victor Conti was giving his athletes. So like Barry Bonds, Marion Jones, Olympic athletes. And remember they were on that tetrahydra gestrinone THG, the clear, which was an analog of trend. Do you know how they made tetrahydra gestrinone? I shit you not. They made it out of the morning after pill. They got the morning after pills. They got the Levon or Gestrel. It was Patrick Arnold. It was Patrick Arnold, a chemist, uh, legendary bodybuilding chemist. So he got the Levon or Gestrel and then chemically reacted it with the other chemicals needed to make the reaction happen correctly and turned it into THG, tetrahydrogestrinone, which is kind of like methyltren, like, you know, or, or superdrol, and that you only need a few milligrams of that shit to make your body go completely berserk. So, it, it, I mean, it's stronger milligram per milligram than Trent is. So, that's where it came from. It came from female emergency birth control. And then they did a little bit of chemical reactions and turned it into a fucking mutant Trent. Okay. Next question is from Marco. Oh, he has some good questions. He has a few. Winstrol, how harsh is it on liver enzymes? Okay, I'm going to like troubleshoot these, or I'm going to rattle these off. If you take oral steroids and you take a blood test, you're not going to like the results, okay? So if you take oral steroids, any of them, it doesn't matter if it's Anavar, Winstrol, whatever, um, and then you take a blood test while you're using them, your cholesterol is going to look like shit. Your blood lipids are going to look like shit. You know, and then you're on steroids, so like your FSH, FSH, your follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone is going to be zero. Uh, like, you know, any doctor that sees that is going to be like, knows what you're doing. Um, so, so, but that doesn't even matter because it's more like your health is why you're looking at liver enzymes. Your liver enzymes are going to be, you know, elevated a bit on oral steroids. But, again, people don't die from taking steroids in acute dosages, okay? So I said this in the last episode of the podcast that, um, you know, if somebody gave me like a hundred bucks to take a uh, 1,000 milligrams of Deanabol in one go, you know, like in one handful, I would do it. I know that's not going to kill me. I've taken 200 milligrams before, taken 300 milligrams of Anadrol in a go, and, and you know, it will probably make me feel sick. It, you know, I might throw up. Or, or have diarrhea, um, or just feel like shit. I'm going to have really high blood pressure from it and a lot of water retention. And uh, yeah, I, I think I'd feel like shit. 
but it wouldn't kill me. That's what I'm saying. It, it, it would just go through me. I'd be fine. So as far as toxicity from steroids, and people seem to think that steroids have an acute toxicity. Okay, steroids are like cigarettes. They kill you slowly, okay? So if you have bad blood work all the time because you're on steroids that give you bad blood work and you go 15 years like that, it's like smoking. It, you know, it tears up your cardiovascular system. It tears up your veins and arteries and stuff. You get heart disease. So that's why you shouldn't use orals all the time. Know that it's not healthy. It's like smoking cigarettes to be on orals or drinking every night to be on orals. It, it won't kill you, though. I, I think drinking every night, that wasn't a good, because drinking can kill you, okay? It's more like smoking cigarettes. It could kill you down the line. All right. Uh, his next question um, was, is the all-known cycle test trend mastron enough to get shredded all year round if nutrition is optimized, mostly chicken, rice, eggs, but genetics are really bad, or does it make... <laughs> Including Winstraw low dose, 10 milligrams, a huge difference. No, 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 the Winstraw is not necessary. Winstraw is better than Masteron. Like if you had to go like with three compounds, like Testron Winstraw would be quite a bit better than Testron Masteron if all were at the same dosages, like 300 of each hormone per week. But, uh, you know, Masteron is healthier. It's definitely much healthier than being on Winstraw. And... Yeah, I mean, it's just test and trend. Those are the two variables that you're running. And when you, it depends on the trend dosage. And you'll start to see this effect around 300 milligrams per week. But once you go up to around 700 to 1,000 milligrams per week, then the real full character of trend is shown. And it just turns your body into a muscle-building, fat-burning machine. But um, you, you can feel it. You can physically feel it every time you eat a meal, every time you go into the gym. Every time you go for a walk, you can you can feel your bodybuilding muscle and burning fat. It's once you get up in those dosages, okay, seven hundred milligrams to a thousand milligrams of trembolone per week, and its full character is shown. Um, and this effect starts being shown around three hundred milligrams per week. Um, you can you can completely hijack your metabolism using those chemicals, test and trend. Um, and if you use enough of them, uh, they will like I said, completely hijack your metabolism and turn your body into a muscle-building, fat-burning machine. But there is a cost. There's a cost to that. Cost to that. You should balance your life. The next question is from Nelson. What if you wanted to do bodybuilding? Say you had to work on an oil rig offshore. Since you can't bring testosterone and ciliaries along with you because of company policies... Can you use Clomid to at least boost the test level? Or maybe have any idea in this sort of situation? By logic, could you use test by only if you have prescribed by a doc? Uh, I've had a, I've talked to another guy that had this issue before. So you can either, you can use test and decanoate, which test and decanoate doesn't, the levels don't really drop off after an injection for about three weeks. So if it's, it's purchased as brand name Nibido. Bayer Nibido, that's the brand name that's on the market, pharmaceutical grade. But any type of test and decanoate will do. So it lasts about three times as long as test C or test E in the body. Um, so you can take that, and then you won't have any problem. Um, the other thing is that you could just double up on your shots before you go on the rig and 
seems like you could take some Arimidex or Eximestane with you, put it in a vitamin bottle if that's really going to be a problem. But, uh, yeah, that, that's all, that's all you can do is you can, you can double up on the dosages before you go, you know, the day before you leave, take a double shot to cover your time when you're on the boat. All right. Last question for the podcast today for the steroids podcast. And I want you guys to remember, go to steroidspodcast.com and sign up for the steroids podcast VIP list so that I have your email account so that I have your email address in my address book because the world is a censored place and there are the powers that be that don't want you to know that this information that we talk about on here. And that's why this information has been censored for so long. And I've had my social media deleted and whatever multiple times. Um, yeah, if you like the show, you've definitely got to go to the steroids podcast website and sign up for the steroids podcast VIP list. There's a link to it on the bottom of the page. Or if you go, if you just, be on the website a pop-up will come down after like 30 seconds but there's also a link on the bottom of the page okay that you can click on to do it gotta do that gotta do that with this day and age with the censorship you gotta subscribe to me like that personally so, so that i can get in touch with you if i get deleted again don't lose you all right and uh the last question today philip Hey, Dan, I have a question again. Why do I always get test flu every time I inject test E and my pin body part gets super swollen? Thank you. First question, how many milligrams per milliliter is your gear? So if it was like 250 milligrams per milliliter or 200 milligrams per milliliter or even 300 milligrams per milliliter and it's test E or test C, um, it's probably not made with any extra solvents to help dissolve that amount of steroid crystal into the um, volume of oil that's being used. Um, so the higher dosage that you go in the same amount of oil, so, you know, 400 milligrams per milliliter is twice the amount of testosterone crystals, um, being fit into the same volume, one milliliter of oil than 200 milligrams per milliliter testosterone. So many times special solvents are have to, had to use to get the oil to distribute those crystals evenly throughout them, or else they will come out of solution and will not be distributed evenly. So when you have these really high dosage gears, for one thing, the high dosage, there's more crystals, which is generally more painful for that reason, but also because these special solvents are in, that are in there, um, and usually synthetic oils also that are more easy at dissolving the steroid crystals, which are you know foreign substances made in a laboratory. They're not natural. They're not castor oil or grapeseed oil or cottonseed oil or something like that from farm grade, okay? They cause irritation and inflammation in your body. And that inflammation that you see, I mean, that's your body saying, what the hell is this? Um, and that doesn't really happen much, you know, like bad inflammation or significant redness and raisedness. That would be very rare for that to really ever happen on pharmaceutical grade gear. And like, you know, a lot of people talk about like, oh, test prop is so painful. Dude, I shoot testosterone propionate pharmaceutical grade and there is no post-injection pain. None. None. So the quality of the ingredients, not just the 
you know, the quality of the hormone and the quality of the steroid crystal. That's the only thing that matters. No, actually, like the the quality of the ingredients, the, the solvents, the oils, the, being expensive, high quality ones meant for human consumptions. It makes a difference in how good your steroids are and, and how they affect your body and in what kind of side effects you get. If you would like your questions to be answered on the steroids podcast go to steroidspodcast.com and leave a comment with your questions or email or private message steroidspodcast at gmail.com or steroidspodcast on instagram until next time